Well, take your Bibles and let's look at Luke chapter 12. So thankful Todd said that he had written that song and, and uh, played it out in California, and I, I had not heard it yet and wanted to. My wife and I had the privilege of spending time with Lance and Beth not too long ago, and you know, you learn a lot about people when uh, they suffer, and one of the things you learn is their theology, obviously. And you learn a lot about what they believe about God as their Savior, their Creator, when you hear them talk about all that is going on in their life. We were so encouraged to be with them. It, it's, you know, we asked the question, how, how are you doing in, in all that diagnosis and all those things that many of you have even perhaps uh, suffered or family members have suffered? And they just said, the, the line has fallen to us in pleasant places just exalting the character of their God in the midst of their circumstances. And I wondered about that. If the lost world around us eavesdropped on our daily conversations with other believers, what would they learn about God from us? What would they learn about him from how we speak of him in our circumstances? If the world had to get their view of God, not from the scriptures, but from how people speak about him in the body of Christ, what would they discover about God's character and about his care and his power and his purposes? And if they listened long enough, what would they learn of God's works, if any, on our behalf? Does God do anything for us? Another thing I began to think about, would they see his perfections? Would they see him as holy? by how we speak of him? Would they learn from us that God's love is astonishing to us, surprising to us, overwhelming? Would they know that our God is highly and intimately involved, ever watching over us as his people, the way we talk about him? Would they view him as benevolent? Perhaps some seasons that would be the case, wonderfully so. In other seasons, though, I'm afraid it might be that after listening to us long enough, they might see God as really not all that much different than human beings and the way we treat each other. Maybe they would see God as selfish and stingy, maybe power-hungry and tyrannical, uncaring, maybe even disinterested. From what we say about God, would they conclude that his love is not all that astonishing? From what we express about God, would the world know that he cares for us and that he's extremely generous? Or do they think he's not generous at all because they spend time with us and look at us in our circumstances and we act like them, talk like them about such things? Here's what God says of himself. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them, not, charge them not to be proud, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of it, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Or Proverbs 19, 17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He'll repay him for his deed. God is not unkind. He takes special note of a heart of humility and generosity. Proverbs eleven twenty five. whoever brings blessing will be enriched. Do we talk about God as if he is stingy in his kindnesses and responses? 
Or how about his love? It is said in Scripture in 1 John chapter 3 that if you see your brother in need and you withhold your compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in you? How can John say that if it isn't true of our God that his love would never withhold his compassion or close his heart? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's not stingy. That's everything. Though he was rich, he became poor that we might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8 9. And we are, according to James 2 5, heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Our God promises big things, delivers on all that he promises. That's what the scriptures say. That's the self-testimony of God, inspired by his spirit. Ephesians 1.3, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No wonder our home is not here. In 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. I mean... When we talk about God, it is superlative upon superlative thrown together. Is that how we talk about him? That he's distributed freely, Psalm 112, 9. That if you lack wisdom, you can go to him who gives to all men generously, James 1, 5. Or how about Romans 8, 32? Because he didn't spare his own son, how will he then not freely give you all things? 1 Corinthians 3, no one needs to boast in men. If you're a Christian, you don't have to have a personality called, I am of Paul, I'm of Paulus. You, you are, you're in Christ. Christ owns everything. Christ owns Paul. He owns Apollos. Everything is yours. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything belongs to you. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Why are you going around anxious and worrying and clawing your way? And if that weren't enough, the 8th chapter of Romans, verse 17, says that if children of God, which we are, we are heirs also, heirs of God himself and fellow heirs with Christ. Everything Christ owns and has purchased and receives, we receive, and we are heirs of God. We get God. Does this sound stingy to you? And yet here in Luke 12, Jesus has been talking about one of the fundamental problems in us. It is the problem the world has through and through. The world covets what it wants. The, the world goes after what it wants. And so Jesus warns the believer not to follow suit because coveting has a twin, worry and anxiety. And he had just said to the rich man, you store up all this stuff, but you fool. Tonight, you're going to breathe your last, and you're going to stand before heaven, and your soul will be required of you. And notice what he says in verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 22. For this reason, I tell you, don't worry. Worry is a sign of coveting. Worry is a sign of wanting what you want, when you want it, in the measure you want it, at the urgency you want it, for whatever reason you want it. That's coveting. And coveting has a twin, and it is worry. Jesus says, don't do it. Then it's a faith issue, verse 28. You men of little faith. It's a faith issue. I gave you last time another reason why we're not to worry or be anxious. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. 
And in verses 23 to 28, we saw that it's unbelief. If you spread it out, this is what it looks like. I have to look out for my own daily needs. That's implied in verse 23. I'm not all that valuable to God. That's implied in verse 24. And somehow by worrying and being anxious and crabbing all this stuff, I can preserve my future. That's implied in verses 25 to 28. That's how it's unbelief. I have to look out for my daily needs. God can't do it. I'm not valuable to God, yet he says I am. I don't believe him. In fact, I can, if I can get what I need here the way I need it from the world, I can preserve my future. I can add cubits to my life, the smallest measure. I can add a day, an hour, even though God says you can't. Your days are ordained. So it is a sign of coveting and it is unbelief when we worry. It's not a respectable sin then, is it? Well, the Lord finishes this section by telling us one more reason you shouldn't covet, and that is because it's worldly. It's worldliness. It's worldliness. Look at verse 29. Don't seek what you're going to eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. All these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. It's a verb that means they deploy everything in their will, everything in their desire, and all their striving and all their energy. That's why I like, in this case, what the NIV says, the pagan world runs after all these things. That's right. They're running after them. They're going after them. Because the mark of the pagan world around us is that earthly things claim supreme allegiance. It owns them, this need to grab whatever they can for their survival. And the reason should be obvious. They have suppressed their knowledge of God. They've just suppressed it. Whether they believe he exists or not, he's certainly not the God that Jesus describes here, which is supposed to dispel worry. He's not that God, if he exists at all. They've suppressed the truths about him, and they've exalted themselves, so now they must spend their lives chasing the things that make life what it is. They've got to chase those things. Who else are they going to get them for, from? They want meaning. They've got to chase after that which will bring meaning and purpose to their life, the reason they exist. They don't believe what God says about the purpose for their existence. They want safety and security, which means food, shelter, clothing, and they want an unending supply of it. They've got to run and chase it down. And when you deny God, you are now under Satan. So Satan's going to give you temporary things that keep you enticed, but he'll never deliver on the things the world desperately wants and every human being would love to have. Safety and security, happiness and fulfillment, and even moral freedom, freedom from guilt, real freedom, freedom from the oppression that comes when you don't do what you know is right, and you harm other people to get what you want. There's guilt, and they would love to throw that off. There's a shelter from the fallout. They don't want consequences. They look for that. They strive for that. No guilt. They even want to be personally good. It's all self-exalting. It brings further guilt. It never delivers on security and safety. Satan never allows full happiness and fulfillment because he can't bring it. He's a liar from the beginning. So they got to go after it. And Jesus says, look, you shouldn't worry because that's what the world does. 
The world spends all its waking hours and all of its sleepless nights fretting over these things, and it has no true God who offers to supply it. Why then would Christians who have a God who says he supplies it concern themselves with it? Sin the sin of worry. Be anxious. And so if a group of unbelievers encounter a group of believers who are a worshiping community saying we love our God and then they listen to what we talk about when we talk about our circumstances. They hear what we say about our God. They watch how we live in response to our circumstances. Sometimes they don't see or hear anything different than what they're frantic about. And Jesus says that when our hearts are filled with anxiety and worry, we're thinking and acting just like the world. We view God like they do. He just isn't there. We act in the moment as if he's not there. And if he is there, he's either silent or indifferent or he's just uncaring and he's cruel and he's at best stingy with his resources. Jesus says here some things about God that are wonderful that should dispel worry and anxiety. And they're positive descriptions, but I want to look at them from the other side. I want to look, look at them from the negative en- angle. You say, what do you mean? Well, he says positive things about our God, but I want to look at them as though these are the things you deny when you worry. So it's, it's, it's helpful to look at them from the negative angle to see the seriousness of anxiety and worry. In the moment, this is what you deny about God when you are sinfully anxious. This is what you deny about him in the moment. I know you love God. If you're in Christ, I know you love him. I know you want to trust him. I know you want to progress in your Christian life. But in the moment of worry, Jesus makes it plain here that this is what you deny about God in that moment. And we identify six characteristics about God here that that when we worry, we deny about him. And they, they, they roll very quickly. They're all strung together in the statements that he makes. Follow along as I read from verse 29 through verse 24. Do not seek what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which don't wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first characteristic about our God that we deny when we worry is we deny God as our Father, our parent, our loving Father. Notice, the same command in verse 29 came earlier when Jesus had said, don't worry. I don't want you to worry about your life as to what you eat, nor for the body as what you'll put on, verse 22. Well, verse 29 repeats it in order that he can give these other reasons. Don't keep worrying, verse 29, because, verse 30 All these things are the things the world goes after, but your father knows that you need them. He gets very personal here. God isn't merely the creator of all human beings, which he is. When Paul went into Mars Hill, 
book of Acts, Acts 17, he preached that very thing. He said, look, you guys, you worship an unknown God. I saw an altar that said to an unknown God, what you worship in ignorance, I tell you now who this God is. In him we live and move and have our existence, and he's ordered the times and the habitations of all men. He's not made in these temples. He doesn't dwell in these temples made with hands. He isn't served by human hands as though he needs anything. He gives life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And he did all these things that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he isn't far from all of us. Even your own poets have said we're all his offspring. Look, even human beings know instinctively because it's planted in them that they are the offspring of God. But Jesus says to the Christian, he is more than just your creator. He is your parent your divine parent. He is your father. Look at verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father has chosen to give these things to you gladly. So anxiety and worry says, God, you're not intimate and caring. You don't draw near and you're not interested in what I need. You're a bad parent. And yet the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 3, you scrutinize my path, my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. When we pray, we address God as Father because in Christ we've been adopted into the family and made into his children. That's an expression of intimacy. There's no fear of approaching the Almighty. There's no fear that he's going to slap us away or be cruel and turn his back on us. We're actually pulled by the spirit of adoption to him as Romans 8 says, Abba, Father. And we cry out in that terminology. We've been given the right to become children of God, John 1.12. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Look, he's your father. He called you his child because he loves you. And Abba is simply the word that means beloved, affectionate father. He is not a bad parent. He's a perfect parent. He is our dad in heaven, divine. When you worry, you tell him he's a bad parent. Notice our father knows something here. Look at verse thirty. Your father knows that you need these things. Let me say a second thing about God that we deny is that he is the sustainer. He's the sustainer. Notice that phrase, you need these things. Look, God tells us what we need because he made us. He fashioned us. He is the sustainer of all of life. Jesus Christ, our Lord, holds all things together, Colossians 1.17, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Look, if he's directing all things, and he's already told us what we need, and he knows how to get the resources to the need. He knows how to bridge the gap, because it says we do need these things. How do we know? He told us we need them. He made us. He fashioned us. God directs everything. In fact, 
Sometimes it's unnerving to know what the scriptures say about it, but he directs everything inanimate. He directs every animal. He directs every event. He directs every nation. He directs every human affair meticulously down to the detail. You don't like that because you're a free human being that makes free choices? You have to live with what the Bible says. He directs all things, even inanimate things, Job 37 says. Not one sparrow hops on the ground without his intimate knowledge. Your father knows it, Matthew 10, 29. Even if you were Throwing a pair of dice, Proverbs 16.33 says, you cast the dice, but every result is of the Lord. It's kind of silly then to imagine that you throw dice in some sort of principle of chance. There is no such thing as chance. Chance doesn't exist. Every roll of the die is God's sovereignly. And he directs all nations. I mean, entire empire, Psalm 22.28, dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. He determined their appointed time and boundary of their habitation, Acts 17, 26. And he makes some great and brings down others, Job 12, 23. He enlarges one, leads another away. It is God that directs all that, and he directs every human affair. You order your steps, you plan your ways, but the Lord directs every result. Proverbs 16, 9. Look, if God sustains all those things, then when we worry, we're basically saying, well, you fashion me, but you don't know what I need. In fact, that's a third result here. A third characteristic of God that we deny is his omniscience. That line doesn't just tell us we do need these things as human beings fashioned by God, but it says your father knows that you need them ahead of time. So we deny not only that he's our father, we deny that he is sustainer, but we deny that he's omniscient, that he knows exactly what we need. Pagan nations run around trying to get this stuff, and they even sometimes get religious about it. On the hillside in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there, the Gentile nations, they pray in vain repetitions to their gods because they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words, Matthew 6, verse 7. Don't be like them, Jesus said, for your father knows what you need before you ask him, before you even ask him. So that means he knows what today will hold. He knows what it will require. He knows all the billions upon billions of contingencies at work in his universe, and he knows how every one of those things is going to affect you and me every second. He knows what we'll need to be sustained through all of what is going to be happening in our life today. He knows how we're made. He knows me mentally. He knows me physically. He knows me emotionally and spiritually. He also knows the maturity level I'm at at any given moment, what I can and cannot handle. And he knows what's going to happen with each decision, the pressures that are upon me to make a decision, the decision I'll make, the needs I'll have in that moment in order to be sustained, cared for, provided for, all the instruction that I need, what I already know, what I don't know, how much I'm going to need before a decision comes upon me. And he knows what I need to bring into his purposes for his glory and my ultimate good all that is necessary. And even when I pray, the Bible says that my prayers are limited, but God isn't limited. In fact, Romans 8 says that when I pray, Paul just admits it. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. 
Some of you are really, you've been Christians a long time, your prayers are down pat. Some of you even add King James language to it. And you sound holy when you pray. And everybody listens up. Wow, you can really pray. Did you know it doesn't matter how sophisticated, how scriptural, all that's wonderful, all that may be genuine in your heart, but even that, the Bible admits we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Why? We're limited. But the Spirit of God, Romans 8 says, translates our prayers to God exactly as they need to get to God to meet our need so that he works all things together for our good. So, beloved, when we worry, we deny that God is an intimate parent who's never wrong in his decisions. We deny that he's the sustainer who fashioned us and told us what we need, and we deny that he knows in the moment exactly what we need. We deny it. We act like the world because the world denies it. The world, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1, has no hope. They are without God in the world. They are darkened in their understanding, Ephesians 2, 12. The unregenerate focus on material things. They even religiously create false gods that are only a reflection of the evil world that they follow. Fourth characteristic that we deny, we find in verse 32... We deny, when we worry, we deny that God is good. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I love this terminology. We skipped verse 31 for a moment because we want to focus in on this characteristic of God. He is still your Father. We're not to be afraid. We are the little flock. I mean, that's terminology that that was given to first century believers who were, were overseen and shadowed by an empire that could dominate at any minute. Thumb up or thumb down, you're dead. Your church is nothing. You're just a bunch of puny people who are part of a sect and we don't like you. You ever feel that way in our culture increasingly? We're the little flock, God's little flock in the midst of a wide world with pursuits, for happiness, the world just searches for it. All the world runs after it, worries about it, anxious over it. And we're the little flock in the midst. And he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Why? Because your parent, your divine parent, God your Father, has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom your father has chosen gladly. The, the verb means to take the greatest pleasure in. He takes the greatest pleasure in getting us all the way to the eternal things he's promised in his kingdom. All of its riches in righteousness, all of its peace, all of its joy. Heirs of God himself, it is yours. God is not stingy. He is good. Look, when you worry, you deny that he's good. You think, well, he might get us to the kingdom and he might be willing to give it to us. Look, if he gave you his son and didn't spare him, he'll freely give you all things in Christ. And here, clearly, Paul, uh, clearly Jesus says, as recorded by Luke, that he's gladly given us the kingdom. He took pleasure and he took delight in it. We talk about God like he takes delight in 
giving us pain. Like he's some cruel God up there making a joke out of this. You know, to keep following me, I'll, I'll, I'll get you there. But in the meantime, he's just sort of knocking us over and beating us up and doesn't care. That's how we talk about God. Like the world would talk about the God of the Christians in their unbelief. Yeah, he's just a capricious God. He's more like human beings. He's not really good all the time. You know why they say that? Because we suffer. And when we suffer, how do we talk about God in our circumstances? Are we like Paul that I read in Philippians 1? Hey, my circumstances in prison have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The whole Praetorian Guard knows about the gospel, and other believers are encouraged to speak more boldly because they see me going through this. It's all about the kingdom. Oh, yeah, some people preach out of envy and strife. Look, I, I, I wish they'd stop their envy and strife. I wish they'd stop their pride. But you know what? The right gospel's coming out of their mouth, and so at least I can say something is being advanced while God deals with them in their pride. The gospel's being advanced. I don't care what they think of me. Who cares what they say about me? Oh, Paul's old. He's on the shelf. I don't care. And if I'm about to go to my death, to die is gain. If I'm going to be preserved, I'm going to help your faith to live as Christ. When people hear us talk about our suffering, is God good? Or is he capricious, maybe cruel, maybe indifferent, uncaring? Oh, he gives me these things, but he doesn't delight in my help and my comfort. Yes, he does. To be anxious over such things is to be like the world, deny that God is a good God. But he says, don't be afraid, little flock. I know you seem little in the midst of it. I know your circumstances are a big cloud overshadowing you. I know that the world is, is completely eating your lunch, or so it seems, but your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Here is a fifth thing we deny, that he's Lord, that he has the power to actually give it and deliver. When we worry, we deny God as Lord. He's chosen with pleasure to give us the kingdom. He's not only good, but he's powerful. As one commentator said, he's omniscient, he's almighty, and he's full of love, especially for his children. He will always act accordingly. And knowing that and trusting him, all worry and suspense will disappear. End quote. That's right. When we talk about God, do we talk about, hey, I'm on the way to the kingdom. I'm interested in using everything here for the advancement of the kingdom. Look, if they learned their theology from us, Jesus warns here, you're going to teach them bad theology about God when you are riddled with anxiety and worry. Your God is a father who loves you. Your God is not stingy. He, is, he sustains you. He tells us what we need. Your God knows before you even ask. Before you even bring a prayer that's limited, he knows. He wants you to bring it, bring it, but he knows. And what you have now is all you need now. And tomorrow, you'll have what you need tomorrow. In fact, the next moment from now, if he gives you something different, it is because he knows. And if you don't have it, you don't need it for that moment. 
All you need is him governing your life. And all worry should go because he's good and he does have the resources to get us there. It's not as though he promised us the kingdom and said, get there on your own. He promised it and he's sustaining us all the way until he can deliver on it and he will deliver on it. This is what Jesus is saying. To worry is to say, no, he won't. He's a liar. And what's the point? If I don't have what I need here and now the way I want it, what's the point in waiting for that? We already saw that. You're a fool. Tonight your soul could be required of you. Then what? Where will all your worry and anxiety get you? And this last one is just an arrow to the heart. Not only do we deny that God is our Father or that He's sustainer or that He's omniscient or that He's good or He's Lord, but when we worry, we deny that He's trustworthy, that He's trustworthy, perfectly trustworthy. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which don't wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. By the way, this isn't some socialistic order or command. He's, he's saying like he did to the rich young ruler, whatever is in your way bringing about anxiety and worry and therefore the denial of your God in the moment, give it to the Lord, offer it up to him. Say, Lord, take it. Remove whatever you want to remove. Use whatever you want to use. It's all yours. I, I hang on to none of it. In fact, especially if it gets in the way of my heart and you. If I give the world a wrong impression of God because I'm running around worrying, take whatever it is I worry about and don't give it to me. Keep it from me. It's yours. It's on the altar. There it is. I own none of it. Take it. Whatever you want to take. And whatever you don't take, help me to use it for you, for the advancement of the kingdom. Isn't that what he says in verse 31? Don't seek these other things. Seek his kingdom. And all these other things take care of themselves. Why is that? Because your perspective changes. You have resources. You have talent. You have intelligence. You have ability. You have openings, door, doors that are open. You have opportunities. You have something that you can use for God, something that you can think about with regard to gospel influence. Some indirect extension of your life can influence somebody else to help them grow in Christ and therefore be a chain reaction for the gospel somewhere else. Use it for the Lord. Because anything else is just arrogance and unbelief and worldliness. James 4 says, man, if you say, I want to go here and do this and make some money and make some profit, hey, if the Lord wills, I'll do that. If the Lord doesn't will, I mean, it's his. You take it, Lord. It's not mine. I'm not building barns with my name on them. I don't care about that. I just want to be generous like you're generous. I want to give like you give. I want to offer my life as you asked me to offer my life, as you gave your life to me. Beloved, worry and anxiety is not a respectable sin. It's a denial in the moment of the very God we, we worship and praise. And we say he's not trustworthy. Man, if something's in the way. Look, back then, food was hard to come by. Water was even hard to come by for some. It was pretty impoverished in some circles. The gap between resources and none was huge. And right in the middle of that, Jesus says, look, whatever's in your way, even if it were possessions, get Get rid of that stuff. Don't. This isn't socialism. 
Take it and offer it to God. Say, Lord, use it for whatever you want. Somebody wants it, they can have it. Somebody wants to take it, they can take it. Somebody wants to be use, useful and I have resources that, they can, that can make them more useful. Extend me, stretch me, spend me for the sake of souls and eternal value. You work a secular job and you do it with all your might as unto Christ. He's the rewarder. And you just say, Lord, make it lavish and spend me for that. Don't stockpile it, sit in the corner. You know why? Because what you wor worry about, that's what you worship. Don't believe me? Verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you worry about is something you're bowing down to. It's an idol. What you're anxious over is an idolatry you're bowing down to, and you may have added it to Christ where he's at in your heart of hearts, and yet your heart has Christ there, and you bow down to Christ, but you add a bunch of other little things you worry about. We do that, don't we? Gosh, we do that. And in the moment, we deny this wonderful reality that we have a heavenly Father who's promised us the kingdom, delighted in giving it to us. He didn't save us to give us nothing. He saved us to be an heir of him and a fellow heir with Christ. If God were stingy with us, that would mean he was stingy with his son, and he wasn't stingy with his son. He highly exalted him. Our life is hidden with Christ, Colossians chapter 3 says. And we ought to seek things above, not, a, not the things in the earth. That's what this means. That's what that passage means. Right here, Jesus explains it. He knows you have need of these things. Pray about them. Leave it with him. Whatever you have, you have from him in the moment. Your circumstances, you may not figure out how he's going to use them, but he will. He's not stingy. He's generous. And he delights to take you in that circumstance and bring about greater gospel influence until he actually gives you the whole deal. The kingdom. Promote the kingdom. Promote righteousness. Promote peace. Promote joy. Let your life and its usefulness promote gospel and souls and the advancement of the church and the and the purity of the body of Christ and the discipleship of other believers and resources used for that, for the raising up and sending of people to do special, unique things for God that he wants them to do. What part do you want to play in all that? That's how you store up treasure in heaven and make a money belt that doesn't wear out. It's eternal things. And Paul was persuaded of this as he tells Timothy, I'm persuaded that God is able to take that which I've committed to him and hold on to it for that day, and it will be a reward. It will be to his glory. It will be everything that I just said, spend me with, Lord, and he spent me. And do you know, the apostle Paul suffered greatly. No one in this room can relate to the Apostle Paul's suffering, and yet he said, I know, I'm persuaded that God is able to take all of that, and, and which I've committed to him, all this preaching, all of this suffering he's committed to me, and he'll make it of eternal value. That's all I care about. I'm not going to worry. I'm not anxious. David praised God in Psalm 34 and said, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
Seek first the kingdom of God. Use everything for the advancement of what God is doing. And be grateful what you have. And be grateful for what you don't have. Thank him for it because he is your father. He's not a, he's not a bad parent. He fashioned us into those that need things. He already knows what we need. He, he's omniscient and he sustains. And he's good. Man, when unbelievers hear you talk about your circumstances, would they know God is good, lavishly good, always good? We say it, oh, you're a good, good father, and then we turn around and complain and worry. Is he good? Is he Lord? Can he bring about the kingdom? Does he have the resources to make this promise and bring it about? Worry denies that. Is he trustworthy? Is there real treasure in heaven when we do those things for him and we don't worry? Does it really produce treasure in heaven? Jesus said so. Jesus is the treasure from heaven. When Paul spoke to the Philippians, he gave us no wiggle room. He said in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for you finish it. Did you say nothing? Or did you sneak something in there? <laughs> There's no exception clause. Be anxious for nothing. Isn't it marvelous the God we serve? And you know how gracious he is? Because how many times a day do we worry and have anxiety? How many times a day? We fail him in this, and he's so patient. This is our parent. This is our divine parent, our father. Little flock, don't you know he's delighted in giving you the kingdom? Let's seek first that, and everything else falls into place. Let's pray. Lord, we know that what we worry about is what we're in the moment worshiping. How sad. We look upon pagan nations and all their idolatry and we feel pity and yet we don't pity our own hearts when we add earthly trinkets and idols to which we bow down. We add them to our hearts where you should have exclusive rule and praise and adoration. Please forgive us for worry and anxiety. Please forgive us for in the moment, denying that you are these wonderful things. Please forgive us. You're so patient with our stubborn hearts. And Lord, move upon our stubbornness. Help us to break through these things. And whatever we face, may we not worry. And when unbelievers hear us talk about you, May we give them right theology, a right view of you. May they hear our gratitude for a loving Father who sustains us, who knows all things, who's good, who is powerful, Lord of the universe, and who's utterly trustworthy. Dispel our anxiety in these truths by faith. We ask it for your sake.